0: Father, thank you for today. Thank you for this morning, the chance and the time to come together, to sing about you, to, to sing expectantly about your coming and the great redeeming power that that brings. And we ask that you speak to us now. Open our hearts and minds to you and open your word to, to us. I'm going to your name. Amen. Now, many of you know that I grew up in a Catholic church um, and then actually went to an Anglican church for a long time. So the Christmas season is kind of fun because it brings all this tradition and all these memories of trying to sing the tenor part to Hark the Herald Angel Sing, which is really high and really hard. Um, but interestingly, and it's, it's, just, it's funny because it's the third week of Advent, and if you know Catholic churches in the third week of Advent, they, um, they, wear, they wear rose. The priest wears rose today. They wear purple for the whole of Advent, but a rose color, specifically rose, not pink, um, because pink is a weak red. And uh, Anyway, they wear rose, and they wear rose only twice a year, once in a Sunday in Advent and once in a Sunday in Lent. And it's kind of interesting, they have a whole get-up for just two Sundays a year, and it's because it symbolizes joy, and a joy that comes with anticipation, it's that kind of a joy. A joy that only comes after a period of waiting. They wear gold on Christmas because it's a celebration, but there's a joy component in in the Advent preparations. Purple is about preparation, it's about preparing our hearts and minds, but there's this this rose color that that indicates this anticipating joy, and that's what we're going to look at a little bit today in Ruth 3. A kind of joy that comes from, from the waiting and the yearning for something. Or maybe the waiting and yearning for something to end, perhaps. Now, Ruth and Naomi, in the story we've been, we've been over the last couple of weeks, they've been waiting and they've been yearning for some rescuing out of their current situation. They've been through some hard times and they need a redeemer. And they find one in Boaz. Sorrow may last for the night, but joy comes in the morning. There's, there's an end. Spoiler alert. The story of Ruth and Boaz is a parallel between us and Jesus. They waited. They trusted in God for a redeemer. They got one in Boaz. We wait. We trust in Jesus as our redeemer. We could end up there, but let, let's dig in a little bit more. I want to recap um, some of the story of Ruth for us because it's not a very well-known book, and so if you've not been around, you may need a little bit of refresher. It's a true story about a family that was in desperate need of redemption. So in the very first chapter of Ruth, we're introduced to this family and we're introduced to uh, Elimelech. They lived during the time of the judges. So let me pause for a second because this is, I think, helpful context, Old Testament, in just like three minutes. We have Moses who takes the people out of Egypt and he heads out to the promised land. Doesn't make it there. Joshua takes over and he takes the people into Canaan, into the, the promised land. After his leadership, there's a period of about... 400 years i'm not a bible scholar so if you want to really count it it's probably not quite 400 years but for the sake of argument let's go with 400 years israel doesn't really have a government that we would recognize it doesn't have that kind of leadership it has a succession of 12 judges that come one after the other all the way through representing the 12 tribes okay now, each of these judges, they, came, they kind of have more of a like a chieftain kind of leadership role. It's, it's not kind of the, the governing body that our culture would recognize. They don't have the rules like that. Um, I think it's worth noting, it's always worth noting, that one of them, only one, um, one of them was a woman named Deborah, and she was badass, um, worth looking at. And Samuel is the last of the 12. And Samuel, and this is around the time the people are crying out for a king. They really want someone to follow and lead. They want someone as the figurehead. And so God through Samuel, appoints Saul, and then he's succeeded by David, who then begins that line of kingship that we know in Jesus. Okay, so that's a little bit of helpful context, I hope. So during this time of judges, these 12 leaders, where there wasn't like a, a true government, there wasn't a king, there was this kind of tribal thing going on, the Bible says that everybody did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. Everyone did whatever they wanted to do, whatever they felt was right. There was no clear guidance from someone. In other words, they didn't really trust the Lord anymore. So because of this, a famine has struck the land. Instead of trusting in God, instead of trusting in the Lord, Elimelech and his wife Naomi, who this story is about, decides to leave the country, and they leave God behind, and they head out to live in Moab. And during their time in Moab, things from bad get way worse. Elimelech dies, and so do his sons. And so Naomi is left with two daughter-in-laws. Not knowing what else to do, she goes back to Israel. And her daughter-in-law, Ruth, insists on going with her. She's so dedicated to her mother-in-law that she leaves her country behind. She leaves her gods behind. She starts again following Naomi and serving God. So now they're back but they're not really much better off yet. So they find this field that's owned by the, this man, Boaz, who is a relative. And chapter two, we talked about last week, it ends with this. Has Ruth stayed close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and wheat harvest were finished? And she lived with her mother-in-law. Now, barley is used for making bread. Um, Bethlehem was known as the house of bread. It was the, the thing they were known for. Barley is still used today. It's quick google search will tell you it's the fourth largest grain crop on the planet so who knew and it was just important then probably more important really and so during the time of ruth the workers would be out in the fields and they would gather up all the barley they could and that was known unsurprisingly as the barley harvest it was a period of time it wasn't just this kind of anecdotal job it was actually a, a specific season and the whole process would last about seven eight weeks somewhere in in that world we're going to pause again because this is helpful too Naomi and Ruth arrive at the beginning of the barley harvest. Not long after, Ruth goes to work in the fields with with all the women that are working with Boaz, who we've found out already that he's a relative, probably a cousin of, of Elimelech. So, no, I thought this was helpful because it occurred to me that I often do this. I read the Bible and assume everything happened in the space of like an afternoon. Like the whole of Acts probably happened in maybe a week. And that's not true. There's actually quite a long period of time the Bible narrative goes over. And there are times in the Bible where we can actually time things out and know how long things took. And that's, I think, a helpful practice to do. So I wanted to do that quickly here. The barley harvest would have lasted, as I said, about seven, eight weeks, somewhere in there. The wheat harvest is a little bit longer, probably more like 10 weeks. So in that one verse, we've gone somewhere in the 7 to 10 weeks time frame. While Ruth has been out in the fields, seven or ten weeks, out in the fields, working with these women day in, day out, seeing them, getting to know them, understanding who they are, getting to meet Boaz, getting to see how things work. It wasn't just kind of a, an overnight thing. They showed up, and then she went to his room. It wasn't quite like that. I think that's helpful to know as we kind of think through how the Bible unfolded and the kind of time it took for some of these things to come into fruition. So now we have a lot of context, and I want to look at this morning three characters In this narrative because I think they each bring um, a challenge or a reminder to us and the first is Naomi so that verse 3 that we kind of started with she says um, to Ruth my daughter it's time that I found a permanent home for you so that you'll be provided for Boaz is a close relative of ours he's been very kind by letting you gather grain with his young women tonight he'll be winnowing barley at the threshing floor Just put a little file in your mind. We're going to come back to the winnowing barley at the threshing floor because I think it's important, but we're going to come back to it. She says, do what I tell you. Take a bath, put on perfume, dress in your nicest clothes. Go to the threshing floor, but don't let Boaz see you until he's finished eating and drinking, and be sure to notice where he lies down. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down there. He will tell you what to do. Now, this seems strange. Even when you know she's a mother-in-law, this is strange advice. This is a little bit different, but what I want to say is that Naomi actually is acting out of faith in this moment. She's not being a pushy mother-in-law with strange advice. She's acting in absolute faith in what she says for two reasons. She has two grounds for this. And they actually, both of them are a lot wiser than they first appear to be. The first is she has God's word. Because God made this provision for a situation just like this. In Deuteronomy 25, it says that if a woman is widowed, and there's no husband, no income, is destitute, etc., then the widow's husband's brother or close relative, which could be Boaz, should marry the widow in order that her family and the honor would be looked after. So Naomi's grounds for encouraging this what appears to be a kind of a strange approach to a strange solution is is really from God's word. She's taking that initiative from what God has, has promised. She's actually finally trusting in what God has done and said. And the second thing that she's acting on is God's kindness. So she has the word. She has this promise. But also, she's seen the kindness through Boaz already. She's not kind of just making something up in a very mother-in-law kind of way and saying hey there's a guy out there who looks kind of cute in his harvesting gear he's got some really cool overalls and a sweet hat i think you should go and go and get to know him i don't think that's what it is he's already shown shown kindness he's shown that that there's an interest we have that family connecting it's not it's not a shot in the dark she's not trying to force god's hand she's responding to what she can already hear god say in his word and see what he's, do, what he's doing in, in his, their circumstances. So they're hearing God's word, they're seeing how he's responding, and then she is responding in turn. Naomi acts in bold faith, and we should act in bold faith too. We should be confident of God's promise, and oftentimes we're not. We need to be confident in what we know to be true and act on that confidence, call on the promises that God has made. The second person is Ruth, and she's also bald, so she does what she's asked. She goes to the threshing floor that night. She follows the instructions of her mother-in-law, verse 6. After Boaz has finished eating and drinking, he's in good spirits, he lay down at the far end of the pile of grain and went to sleep. Ruth came quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. Around midnight, Boaz suddenly woke up and turned over. He was surprised to find a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? He asked. He asked. I'm your servant, Ruth, she replied. Spread the, covering, the corner of your covering over me, for you are my family, Redeemer. It's a bit weird, got to be honest. But back it up a touch. Ruth is very similar. Prior to going to Boaz, she's very similar to how we are before we come to Christ, or how anyone is before we come to Christ. So Ephesians 2 says, don't forget, you Gentiles used to be outsiders, You were called uncircumcised heathens by the Jews who were proud of their circumcision even though it affected only their bodies and not their hearts. In those days you were living apart from Christ. You were excluded from citizenship among the people of Israel and you did not know the covenant promises God had made to them. You lived in this world without God and without hope. And that's how Ruth was living. And she comes to Boaz and she replies something a little bit different. She replies, I am your servant Ruth, spread the corner of a covering over me, for you are my family, a redeemer. Or in another translation, I am Ruth your servant, spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. Now her response is really, really important. It's subtle, but it's important because of something actually that she doesn't say. In the first two chapters, she talks, herself, talks about herself as the Moabite. She's described as the Moabite. She's from Moab. She's a foreigner. She's not one of God's people. That is her identity. In chapter 2, it talks again. I am a foreigner. I'm not even one of your servants. The Ruth, the Moabite, is how she is known. That's who she is intrinsically. But in chapter 3, that's gone. That's gone entirely. Because in chapter 1 and 2, that was her identity. A Moabite. That's who she was. It's how she defined herself. And in chapter 3, I am simply Ruth. Ruth. I am Ruth, I am your servant. Chapter two, why should you notice me? I'm a foreigner, I don't belong here. But chapter three, I am Ruth, I'm your servant. Her whole status, her whole standing has changed. Her approach to Boaz has completely changed as she acknowledges him as her redeemer because she has come to take refuge under God's wings. She's not a Moabite anymore. She's one of God's people, one of his chosen, loved, redeemed, beautiful people with a new identity, just like us when we come to Jesus. And this picture of boldness in a new identity is really important because we need to approach God with, with humility, but also boldly. Boldly confident of our identity in Christ. We carry so many labels about who we are and where identity is. We define ourselves by work or achievements or family or relationships or personalities or education or Enneagrams or all those things. We define ourselves by gender and sexuality. And all those things are shaky identities. They go up, they go down, they go in and out of fashion. Defining ourselves in that way leaves us vulnerable. It leaves us uncovered. As we come to Christ, we come to find refuge under God's wings. We're changed. We have a new identity, a new security. As we become children of the King, we have that new identity of who we are. And Ruth lives that out, that Ephesians 3 idea. Ephesians 3:12. In Christ Jesus, through faith in him, we approach God with freedom and with great confidence. So consider how you define yourself. So often we define ourselves actually not even by our circumstances but by our sin, by the way that we rebel or the way that we fail. And, and when we do that we can end up leaning really heavily on being unworthy and being a sinner. And that's, that's true but it's not the whole truth because in Christ we find freedom from sin. We can be defined by him as our savior and that should give us great confidence to trust in and claim the promises of his word that he's for us, that he's with us, and that in him we can do all things. It's Philippians 4. If we go on trusting and walking with him, one day he'll take us home to be with him in perfect glory forever. And that's the kind of confidence Ruth has as she comes to Boaz, boldly trusting in the promise of God's word that Naomi probably taught her, that as a close relative of the family, Boaz is in a position to redeem her and redeem her family line through marriage. So Naomi acts with this bold faith. And, and, and Ruth has confidence in her identity. So that leaves us with Boaz. And um, my wife and I just got back from a trip, short trip to Seattle. And um, where we live, which is outside of the city, in the more rural area, there's a, a hill called Hollywood Hill. and it's unsurprisingly by its name, very fancy. Uh, lots of equestrian properties then it 's a winding trail exactly we demand there 's no street lights it 's very pretty and there 's a there 's a turn on Hollywood hill, which is quite a sharp turn, and if you don 't know it 's there, you can get caught out by it, especially when it snows. Every year we lived in Washington, somebody drove through the back of someone 's backyard and almost hit their house every single, sometimes multiple times each season, which is a terrifying way to wake up, to hear a car crash through and career almost to your house. That must be just terrifying. and Not the best way to wake up. This actually has happened in the Bible a few times. Adam, in Genesis, he he wakes up to find that God has created him a wife, which is a bit more pleasant, I would guess. (laughs) Jacob wakes up to find out that he's married the wrong person. We can pull apart that another time. And Boaz wakes up to find someone sleeping at his feet. Now... If you're a parent, I have three children, if you're a parent, if a child has woken you up, it is not the way, I don't respond in the way that Boas responds. So Winnie, is our youngest, is, is the worst for this. Sometimes our kids will come in and they just kind of, just, just gently hold my arm as if they're trying to interrupt a conversation and I, I wake up peacefully and we, we have a conversation and then we manage the problem as it ensues. Other times, Winnie particularly, will come into our room silently in the dead of night making less sound than i've ever heard a child ever make and stand about here and if you've ever woken up with someone about here it is absolutely terrifying now there's been a few times that i've yelled in surprise and they too have yelled in surprise and there has been a to and fro of surprise yelling at two o'clock in the morning Winnie however does this so often she finds it funny so she stands here I yell out in surprise and she laughs and then goes back to sleep and I can't sleep because of the fear of what just just took place and she hasn't woken up yet now Boaz doesn't wake up and yell out in surprise now as I already gave you a clue in Boaz is is this picture of Christ to us. So we can look at how Boaz responds to see how Jesus responds to us. And he responds in grace, with acceptance, and blessing. He responds in the way that I imagine I would like to respond when Winnie's here, but never do. He commends ever taking refuge under the wings of the Lord. His words are laced with these loving intentions. He kind of says, because you take refuge under the wings of God, you're the kind of woman I want to cover with my wings too. He doesn't respond with disgust or disdain. He doesn't respond with surprise or ridicule. He doesn't respond in a way that takes what he wants for himself. Because a story where an unmarried woman appears at the end of his bed could have ended differently, but it doesn't, and Boaz responds with blessing. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. You're showing even more family loyalty now than you did before. You've not gone after a younger man, whether rich or poor, so now don't worry about a thing. He honors her decision to follow the Lord's promise, and he provides for her immediate needs. He fills a cloak full of grain. He promises that her future is secure. Do not worry about a thing just as Jesus does for us. When we finally come back to him, which I think is, not, is, is often like a child coming to a parent's bed in the middle of the night, kind of cautiously, a little nervously, trying to creep up so you're not giving the game away until you're already there. We're not met with reprimand, we're not met with ridicule, but we're met with love and grace and provision and a future that is secured. Naomi acts with bold faith. Ruth displays this confidence in her identity, and Boaz responds with grace and acceptance. And honestly, that's a lot to digest, but there's one more point I really want us to look at that I actually really feel like God wants us to look at this morning, and it's where all this stuff took place, where this entire slightly odd narrative unfolded, and just like the timeline that we started with, I think is, is helpful context. I think this specific location where this will happen is, is no accident. The barley harvest is going on. It takes two months, whatever. The workers have been in the field. They've been working really hard. They've been protecting the crops. And they sleep on the threshing floor to protect what they have harvested. That's their, their livelihood, their income, that they're hanging on to it. Now, the threshing floor is key. The threshing floor is a place of refinement. A place where what is worthless is stripped from that of value. So the grain is turned in the air. The barley is turned into the air to release the chaff out into the wind, which is the worthless bit that just kind of floats into the wind. And we too must spend time spiritually on the threshing floor to cleave from ourselves what is worthless, what doesn't lead to fruit. What doesn't lead to edifying work. We must cast it into the wind and focus on what is worthy, what is good, and what is of value to Jesus. And there is joy to be found on the threshing floor. Joy, like so many things, is heightened and complete in the contrast of its opposite. Because without trial, joy is incomplete. And we read that in the first chapter of James, you know, the idea that perseverance must do its work, that we should consider trials joy, not because trials are fun, not because they are enjoyable, but because they lead to deeper, fuller, and complete faith, and that's where joy is found. Without refinement, we cannot be purified. The process of refining fire, of removing impurities by extreme stress is much like the work of the Holy Spirit on our lives. We're refined by our experiences. We're purified by trial, by the way we endure. So Shay and I were in in Seattle. We were celebrating and mourning the life of our dear friend Jana, who, who died at 49 just a few weeks ago. And she was an incredible force for the kingdom. She loved deeply, and she challenged greatly. And our lives were refined through our relationship with her. And we've learned, ask the questions... Ask the challenging questions. Ask them in love, please, but ask those questions. Because the threshing floor is a painful place to be, but a necessary place to be. And if we shy away from the threshing floor, then what is the point of any of it? If we don't do the work of separating the the wheat and the chaff from our spiritual lives, how do we grow? How do we know Jesus better? How do we deepen our faith? How do we live lives of kingdom relevance and build legacies that point to him? When we lived in Washington, we we had a garden, we grew vegetables, and we had chickens and all things, and we grew hydrangeas and, and roses, as it happens. And both of those plants, like so many, need pruning. And it can seem brutal some years to cut back those hydrangeas, cut back those roses. But if you don't, the plants don't thrive, Hydrangeas actually flower on old wood, so you actually have to be quite careful about how you prune so that they can grow well on this fresh life that comes um, in, the next, in the next season. You cut back the plant in that right season so it can bloom, and it can flourish in the summer. There's a season for pruning, and there's a season for blooming. They can be done together sometimes, but often, oftentimes they're not. And if you're in a season of pruning, if you're feeling the weight and the pain of the threshing floor, remember the season to bloom will come. And you'll come through it stronger and more resilient and radiating his love in a fuller way. And the way to do it is through community. Psalm 30 weeping may last through the night, joy will come in the morning. And there's a hint of that joy in the narrative of Ruth. She comes to Boaz to be her Redeemer as they're celebrating the harvest. There's great celebration for us when we put our trust in Jesus, the Redeemer. When we spend time on the threshing floor, depending on His promise, as Naomi did, confident in our identity, as, as Ruth had. Jesus will respond, as Boaz did, with grace, with love, with acceptance. And amid great celebration. So this season of Advent approach King Jesus with the same boldness of Naomi, that same confidence that Ruth had, like, like a child finding their parent at night, knowing he will redeem the pain of the threshing floor and turn it to great joy. Advent itself is it, it comes from a Latin word Adventus, it means coming. And we celebrate with great joy, Jesus, the Redeemer, God's gift of a Redeemer to us. Will you pray with me now? Father, we thank you for Jesus, for the gift of Jesus. We thank you that we, like children, come to your throne room, perhaps cautiously, perhaps timidly, but you welcome us in. And we should come with great boldness, but oftentimes we don't. And we, we thank you for the reception we get when we get there, for the love you show, the grace you offer. Help us to, to be bold in faith. Help us to depend on your promise. And Help us to look to you as our redeemer. Amen.